1: Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher.
0: Hi, this is Desi Jettikin.
1: Desi, let's start the show by thanking the wonderful people who subscribe to our Patreon. This past week, we have a Patreon account. It helps support the show. And in return, for your subscription, you will have access to all of our bonus content over at Patreon, including ad-free episodes, there's a lot of shit up there. There's like 350 shows up there. Wow. That's a lot. There's a lot of Yeah, there's, a lot there's of years shows. and you get
0: access to it immediately.
1: Yeah, as soon as you sign up. Anyway, this week we had Natalie, Sarah, Mackenzie, Courtney, Andrea, Angelique, Sana, Patricia, Jones, Jackie, Laura, Christine, Kathleen... Another Christine, Sarah, Liv, Mary Catherine, Peyton, and Ruby. Thank you all so much. Thank you. I'm wondering if the Jackie who subscribed has the same last name name as, a, as an old friend of mine. Write into the show or DM me on Instagram if that's
0: you. Okay. You have the same last name as my friend. Hmm. But thank you. Um. Okay. So... First of all, I was shocked that the story was this year, but this story broke in March of 2022, and it was pretty wild. It immediately captured everyone's attention, and it's still fascinating to this day. I mean, people are still talking about it, and as I'll mention at the end, there was a new interview with the person we're going to talk about today, Elizabeth Finch, and we'll be doing a special mini episode with that new interview, so yeah. Yeah. This story is about a writer named Elizabeth Finch. She worked on Grey's Anatomy. Uh and sort of her the way she really made it in the business by was was talking about her personal traumas and using those stories in her work. Whether it was working for a TV show, writing essays, she said that she had cancer. Um but she had other things she said to to get attention and sympathy um other traumas, not just the cancer. So she really used these to get this this attention she so fucking needed. And she used this to build her career. And as we've talked about probably before, this is really a golden age where people sort of mine their trauma for personal and professional gain. Yeah. Now of course the major difference is that she made it all up. Right. That's sort of <laughs> and you can have an opinion about what what the ethical uh you know, or what? how that, if you think that's a good thing or not, that people use their trauma to kind of get work and whatever. And of course, not everybody. No, there not have, everyone does it. And there have been some great essays by people who are vulnerable, but. It's definitely, okay. though, a thing where I think it's like not even shocking anymore that no. people do it. I remember when it what would, would be shocking that people would reveal trauma. It was like, whoa, like, I've never heard a story like that before. And now I yeah. feel like you see it all the time, like. It's, it's just interesting. It is
1: interesting. People are a lot more open with sharing pretty intimate details about like the worst things
0: that have ever happened to them before. Right, which I'm sure has benefits because yeah. you shouldn't be ashamed about but, those but things. Then,
1: but then you get people like this woman who sees
0: attention that people are getting and, and is like, oh, I could have that. And this is like a, a subject I'm very interested in. There's been a ton of memoir writers too who have been busted for elaborating, um, not not always out and out lying, but I mean, I hope to cover those cases sometimes because I just really I'm into it, like, like
1: like that million little pieces guy, James Fry. Remember he got in trouble. <sighs> that was a huge deal because he was like the Oprah Book Club pick. Everyone was obsessed with that book, and it like. I don't know, it came out like before I got sober, but I remember like people at My Sober Living had that book. Oh, yeah. They they were like, because it was just so big, everyone had that book. But like people would ask me, people who weren't sober would ask me if I had read the book. I'm like, no, I haven't read his fucking book. And then it came out that he was like elaborating
0: or embellishing stuff. And I'm like, see? (laughs) Well, I remember too the book Running With Scissors. I read that book. That too had a scandal? Yeah, a lot of it was made up. Wow. Or exaggerated. Well, Desi, I'm on the edge of my seat
1: (laughs) waiting, even though I did read the... But you know what? I want to hear
0: the stuff you dug up. Okay. Well, I mean, everything I've dug up is probably things you've read. But uh, I used a two-part article in Vanity Fair called Scene Stiller, The True Lies of Elizabeth Finch. This is by Eugenia Peretz. There's tons of stuff I looked at on Vulture. Um, and then the main sources for this are the Ankler articles. The Ankler is a um, showbiz um, like newsletter, but it's like in-depth. They broke the story, the original story. It was called The Talented Ms. Finch. It is written by Peter Kiefer. I mentioned um, the follow-up interview that will be in the mini episode. It's also written by Peter Kiefer, but I'll give it a plug at the beginning of that episode as well. Um, I also just really read a ton of blog posts, but it all, it all it all ends up having like the same information because everyone's kind of using all the main sources. But I kind of really wanted to immerse myself in the story because it's confusing yes. in a way. Yes, Because there's a lot of lies, obviously, and there's a lot of different versions of certain stories. So I would have to kind of be like, well, she said that in this Vanity Fair article, but then later on in the, the Ankler article, this is said. So I would try to find sometimes like find out which one was the truth. And sometimes I couldn't. Yeah. Because it was written either incorrectly or everyone just has a different version. Uh, it's weird. I have a question. Is her Twitter account still up? Even though I know she like left Twitter. But she was really active on she's Twitter. She's very active on Twitter. I actually don't know, but when I would click the tweets, they wouldn't go to anywhere. So I don't oh. know if she deleted the tweets. But oh, it didn't go account. to her account, though. So I bet you she's not on Twitter. She's very yeah. like isolated and not out in the world. Right now. So I I doubt she's on Twitter. Yeah. But she was very active. Anyway, um, Elizabeth grew up in a middle-class Jewish family in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. She had her mom, Joan, who was a special education teacher, her dad, Robert, and an older brother named Eric. It was at Cherry Hill High School that she developed her love for writing. They had a very active theater department, and Elizabeth wrote plays for them to perform. She eventually went to college at Carnegie Mellon. And it was here that she had her first experience with cancer. Her mother was diagnosed with the disease. She would later write about the experience, quote, Our family were all experts in pharmacology, wig design, hip hospital lingo, and fashioning surreptitious means of throwing up in public places. Her mother eventually went into remission, and Elizabeth was off to USC film school. After that, she got her first industry job working as an assistant um, to television writer Rick Cleveland. When his mother was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, Elizabeth was the one who would do all the research for him as far as treatments and other helpful information uh, regarding this cancer um, as he was navigating the situation with his mom. She did the same thing. For Rick, when a good friend of him was diagnosed with breast cancer, she was like into like finding out like how to help these people. It was Cleveland who introduced her to writer-producer Alan Ball, who was creating True Blood at the time. And she was hired to write on the show, which was her first official writing gig. Around this time, she also began writing personal essays, her first one about cancer was written for a personal essay site called Fresh Yarn. I actually wrote some things for that site. <laughs> it was like, like the it was like the personal essay blog, like what, what was it called? It was called Fresh Yarn. So it was like a lot of TV writers in LA wrote for this site cuz the yeah. woman is based in LA. So this was not about her cancer. It was about her experience dealing with um, her mother's cancer and how it led to her being tested for the BRCA gene mutation, which she tested positive for. And this was where she kind of nailed her essay style, which was very dismissive of doctors, especially if they were men who weren't taking her pain seriously, like that kind of thing, and how she was really brave standing up to these doctors. Um Saying things like, I could tell the doctor wanted me to cry, but I wouldn't like give him that satisfaction. <laughs> so that was her sort of defiant style, which you can see why people would relate to, because a lot of people have horrible experiences with doctors.
1: Yeah, there is a lot of, obviously, I don't know if it's her truth or her experience, because who knows what the fuck her experience is. Exactly. But, but that is a real issue that uh, women... Black women especially have historically with doctors where they don't believe
0: pain. Right. So it was something that people latched onto. So it's like, who knows if she knew that that was like the way to go or yeah. what. It's a real, it's a real issue. Absolutely. But all of her issues are real issues. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. So her personal essay was obviously a success and she decided to mine more trauma for the basis of a play that she wrote. This was about an ex-soldier with PTSD who stalks his ex-girlfriend, something that she claimed was based on her own experience with an ex. In 2012, she landed a gig writing on The Vampire Diaries. This was a very difficult writer's room experience for her. Elizabeth was described as meek, full of anxiety, uh, and she was definitely worried that she'd be the next writer fired if she didn't step up more um, You know, in the writer's room. It was at this time, after going in for knee replacement surgery, that Elizabeth claimed she was diagnosed with cancer, chondrosarcoma, a rare and most always fatal bone cancer. Wow. So this is a very serious form of cancer. She told people that um, they found a tumor on her spine that was too risky to remove surgically because it could possibly paralyze her, so she began chemo immediately. After starting chemo, her head was bald and she walked around with a bandage, which she said covered up the chemo port. And she really started showing up to work looking very sick, like you would be if you were going through chemo. Yeah. One family member spoke of talking how she might die. She was talking to Elizabeth how she probably will will die of this disease and that they would lie in bed together crying about the situation. Finch kept her parents away. Um, people were baffled by this, uh, but she was like, oh, they're they're really overbearing and I don't want to be around that energy while Dude. I'm sick. Uh, the parents are obviously crushed that she kind of shut them out. Her brother, Eric, who was a doctor, would also request to speak to her doctors to kind of get a handle on the situation and yeah. relay it back to the parents, but she refused to uh, set up those meetings. She would fly back to to the East Coast for occasions like her mom's 60th birthday party. And people were just like so impressed by her resilience. Um, All of her odd behavior was chalked up to her being extremely independent. She was treating her illness with a quiet dignity. And that's what was, that was what was happening according to them. So obviously she's still writing TV uh, and she even had dream jobs in mind. At the top of the list was Grey's Anatomy. In February of 2014, she wrote about her diagnosis of chondrosarcoma in Elle magazine. This essay is almost like an audition to write for Grey's Anatomy. It's very dramatic. It has the feisty heroine who makes things difficult for her doctors with her sassy you know, attitude. One of the quotes from the article, When I defied Dr. Cryptic's orders to take an indefinite leave of absence from my work, he thought chemo deserved my sole attention. He doubted my commitment to getting well. She <laughs> was not going to let cancer stop her from living, goddammit. She also wrote, like... I watched producers' cuts under a fog of Demerol, punched up dialogue about vampire werewolf hybrids with a shunt in my spine. Yes, I was down 17 pounds, bald, vomiting relentlessly, but I was still living alone, still stubborn as hell. I mean, you can just picture how people read this. And obviously, you never doubt someone's claim that they have cancer. No. So you're reading this and thinking, damn, like she is like wow, like I'd be curled up in a ball, <laughs>
1: like yeah. whatever. You'd be like, wow, this is
0: one tough broad. Yeah. So after this article came out, a development executive at Shondaland, which is the production company of Shonda Rhimes. She's obviously a huge producer, writer. Uh, she is the sh- you know creator of Grey's Anatomy, which was in its 10th season. They were looking at her as a potential hire for that season. She meets with Shonda Rhimes. Everyone is very impressed with this article, and Shonda offers her her dream job basically to write on Grey's Anatomy. And she did, you know, pretty well by all accounts. As I said before, this show is custom made for strong women who have this deep well of personal stories to draw from. If you've watched Grey's Anatomy, you know they have very interesting medical cases, uh, interpersonal dramas, and it's always very unique. And you know it's coming from someplace like personal. Yeah. So a few seasons after starting, they hire a new head writer, Krista Vernoff. Uh, she took over as showrunner, and she did like a blind read of all the writers to see like who matched her voice the best. Elizabeth didn't make the cut and was let go. But someone in Shondaland was like you got to read this L article and Krista read it and she reconsidered and they rehired her. So wow. she got lucky. Unlike on the Vampire Diaries, Elizabeth is very comfortable in this room. She often dominates meetings, sharing stories, confessing secrets about herself. Like this is all very encouraged in this room, so she like shines in this environment. Um, diversity is also very big in this uh, room. And her diversity, and she talks about with this with a Hollywood reporter, is that she's the only person in the room with a disability. So uh, everyone, you know, makes her feel real at home and she fits right in, et cetera. So, she no one loved laying their pain bare more than Elizabeth. She that she's like custom made to do this in the writers room. She also has a morbid sense of humor about all of these stories which is perfect for a show about doctors as we all know they can have very dark senses of humor. God, just knowing in hindsight that she was cracking <laughs> dark jokes about cancer when she didn't have cancer, it's crazy. It's sick to me. It's so sick. So, and some people would say, like, when she'd laugh at these, like, later after they found out, they're like, was she laughing that we didn't know? Like right. that was what was so funny to her. Right. Like, um, every day she showed up, her skin was yellowish with um, makeup trying to cover it up. Uh, she obviously had her bandages, her head would be covered with scarves. And sometimes coworkers would hear her vomiting in the restroom. Uh, Some days it would seem so bad that they were like, please go home and get rest. And she's like, no, no, I really need to be here. Please just let me stay for one more hour. So people were like, damn, she is dedicated to this job. She didn't turn down all the perks of her illness though. She got an extra special comfortable chair. She had something that Some of the writers described as talking rights, where no one would interrupt her when she would tell a story, and she could take her time telling it. And many coworkers would later say that this is kind of unheard of in a writer's room where everyone's just kind of yelling out things and like whenever they think of it or or whatever. And they're like, anyone else would have been fired for being such an attention hog. Like it just doesn't happen. Right. But one writer was like, we all tolerated it. Because we thought she might be dying, that these might be her final words. Like without the context (laughs) of her
1: illness, her personality would be irritating. She's a blowhard.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So writers started noticing things though. Like her flare-ups often would happen around the same time she had a deadline. (sighs) And other people would pick up the slack for her, obviously wanting to help. She also got extensive um, leave. So she would often want to go to these clinical trials. One of them was at the Mayo Clinic. She got an apartment near the Mayo Clinic. She even had a friend come with her who would drive her to her appointments at the Mayo Clinic and would just drop her off in front, of course. Right, right. right. Uh, sometimes she would snap a picture of the exterior of the mayo for Instagram with tags like, there are giants in the sky. Come on. Yeah. She always declined offers of friends who were like, I'll go in with you and like hold your hand during the appointment. She's like, no, 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 no. I don't want anyone connected to my cancer memories. <laughs> that was like things she would tell them. <laughs> Sorry. In 2017, she got another devastating bit of health news. She needed a kidney transplant. She posted on Facebook, two hospital hangouts, nearly two weeks of hell, but finally one happy, healthy kidney. Thanks for all, heart emoji. She told another writer that Anna Paquin was to thank. And this is left very vague. Like, did she help you with the kidney transplant? Did she- um, Pay for it? Give you her kidney? Right. Like, what- (laughs) But no one, no one really knows, and this is a piece of the information I was looking for. It's also that she has one kidney now, even though she got a transplant. This is what I was trying to figure out so maybe she lost both kidneys and was saying she had one it's very confusing but the but a kidney and anna packwin was involved yes Paquin will later say that she had nothing to do with any of the kidneys like <laughs> kidney yeah. nothing and she tweets a lot about um, her illness and things she has to go through because she has this serious cancer she goes to Israel at some point, and she throws a fit when they make her check her bags because her cancer meds were inside the bags. She tweets at Delta, you cannot insist a cancer patient check meds, lose the bag, and insist nothing can be done. None of this happened, though. She doesn't have cancer. Like <laughs> This is awful. Um, at her 40th birthday party... She speaks of her illness. This is,
1: like, again, this is another issue because there are disabled people who have a really difficult time sometimes yeah. traveling on airlines, and these
0: are very real issues people go through. And this is, like... She's just making a mockery of it. <laughs> it's, like, so insane. Um. So she's like, everyone here in this room is someone I know and love, and over the last very bizarre seven years has been inter- instrumental in helping me get to 40, including... They don't want to be identified personally, but there are two doctors from the Mayo Clinic who flew all the way from Minnesota here. I promised that I would not show you guys who they were, but I wanted them to be surrounded by my friends and family who I love so fiercely. Like that is deranged. Also, this is very
1: bold because what if someone from the Mayo Clinic, because like she had had a big following on Twitter. Yeah. She had a big account. And, like, what if somebody who worked at the Mayo Clinic was on Twitter and saw that and was, like, asking her coworkers, like, hey, do you know
0: this lady? Yeah. It's it's wild. Like, that's what I mean. If not, I could never understand doing anything like this remotely. But if I did, I would keep it real close to yeah. the, like, I, I would be, like, yeah, I have cancer. I don't want to talk about it. I wouldn't be making tweets. I wouldn't be adding Delta. Right. Like, I would keep it, like... To the minimal possible line, <laughs> right? right? Like <laughs> That's just me. I'm not going to do it at all because I can't, I would never recover from being busted. This is a very special
1: type of mind.
0: Yeah. Shame, shame works on me. Like <laughs> I'm not going to do anything that will make me ashamed. And this is very shameful to me, this yes. behavior. So cancer becomes her kind of beat in the writer's room, even though there are other survi- cancer survivors in the writer's room. She's kind of like, I have it now. Like that's her thing. Oh. Uh, sometimes writers will push her back on like an emotional direction and she'll lash, she starts lashing out at people when they kind of confront her or like disagree with her. Um, she says things like, this is how it feels to have cancer and none of you could know or understand. She would storm out of the writer's room. And some of the survivors in the writer's room said they started not even chiming in because it wasn't mm. worth dealing with these emotional outbursts. In 2018, her experience becomes a major storyline on Grey's, uh, and she writes this writes the episode that launches the storyline. It's called "Anybody Have a Map?" It is um, so basically one of the doctors on the show. Her name is Catherine Avery. She's married to Richard, who is the um, hospital, the head of the hospital. This uh, character is played by Debbie Allen. She gets the same cancer that um, I'm sorry Elizabeth has. And she's very based on Elizabeth. She's like, you better fix my cancer. Cut that thing. You're not going to... You better cut that tumor off my spine because I got to go to work and have surgery in the morning and I can't be paralyzed. Like, that's like the doctor's vibe. It's very still working. Uh, It's like what Elizabeth thinks she is, right? Right, right. This fucking hero and this miracle who's going to like do, you know, do this. So this is like a... This is a pretty long story arc, obviously. Um, At the end of this episode, her husband, who does a a voiceover in the episode, says, the problem with all the how-to step-by-step books, they don't take into account the exceptions to the rules. They never leave room for the outliers, the geniuses, the miracles. (laughs) I mean, he's talking about his wife. So that's like acceptable. But Elizabeth's basically talking about herself. That's how she sees herself is uh, this sort of exception to the rule. Like she's surviving this very difficult cancer to survive. She has it young. It's like something like usually older people get. So she's just this like, you know, random outlier who's also a miracle and a genius and everything. So when this storyline comes out, obviously people interview Elizabeth about it. And she claims in one of the articles that she really resisted sharing her personal story. Come on. (laughs) She said, I wanted to say no. A big, fat, super empathetic thought, though ever polite, no. But her coworkers insisted, and so she broke down her wall. She said, I said yes because Shonda once wrote an email where she told me, love yourself more. And when Shonda says something like that, you listen. Now, according to someone (laughs) in the writer's room, (laughs) the conversation went more like this. Elizabeth, it would be so amazing to give Catherine my cancer, but maybe I shouldn't write it. It might be too triggering. Everyone in the room, okay, we'll protect you. Someone else can do it. Elizabeth, no, I can do it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, look, this is not a woman who had any trouble writing about her cancer. She had, by this point, written eight cancer-themed articles, including, I confronted the doctor who missed my cancer. Um... She also wrote something called Deciding to Have an Abortion While Getting Chemo, Redefining Brave, All My Eggs in One Basket about Her Cancer and Fertility Choices. Uh, She even wrote some of these um, at Hedgebrook, which is a competitive writer's retreat for female writers trying to bring about positive change in the world. And she used her illness to get in. That was like part of her application process to get into this exclusive writer's retreat. She's like the Rachel Dolezal of cancer. (laughs) Yes, yes. So she also would pick fights with people, not just Delta online. She would tweet things like, talk to me when you screamed yourself to sleep at night from the pain, and I'll argue about the merits of legalizing marijuana every damn where. She would also write things like, (laughs) I officially run out of ways to politely say, stop tweeting me miracle cancer cures. It's exhausting and insulting and presumptuous as fuck. So she was like going Overboard in my opinion. (laughs) Like you don't have to go at people on Twitter like that when you don't have a fucking like leg to stand on. Like you don't have cancer.
1: She's taking real people's grievances and struggles. People who have had cancer before or, or illnesses. Yeah. And just applying all of them to herself and making it her
0: struggle. I just can't. I it's can't crazy. believe it. Well, it's about to get worse because she um, continues to experience a variety of traumas that she will start to use in similar ways. So after Trump was elected in 2016, she claims that someone left uh, an anti Semitic symbol or note outside of her door. She posted the picture. With a tweet, with the message, yes, I am the only Jewish person in my building. Yes, I am the only one who received this on my doorstep. No one knows if this is true. In March of 2018, during the Me Too, like the height of that uh, movement, she wrote in The Hollywood Reporter about an alleged harassment she endured years prior by a director on the set of another show and also claimed there was misogynistic verbal abuse and unwanted touching. When Brett Kavanaugh was nominated for the Supreme Court, she used her cancer abortion store for a PSA video by that Now Democracy group who used to do all those videos, telling people that the ability to have an abortion saved her life um, and also claiming in it in the video, I may never be cancer free. On the day Christine Blasey Ford testified, she went on Facebook saying, "Men, find a way today to tell women in your life that you believe them. Don't assume they know, not today, believe survivors." N- I mean, none of these are necessarily bad things, but she was definitely always inserting herself into like everything and and talking about like her personal connection to these traumas, which who knows, they might be true. I have no idea, but she did not have an abortion while chemo, obviously. But that video she talks about having an abortion while on chemo, it's all a lie. Like it's crazy. <laughs> that's the thing that's so
1: fucked up is cuz any of these other traumas or even like whatever, any any of these bad traumas that you just mentioned besides having an abortion on chemo, they they could have happened to her. Yeah.
0: But I don't know one knows what to believe. Believe anything she says. Well, it's like the boy who cried wolf. I mean, that's a story for a reason that's a moral story like for a reason i mean and this is like the most extreme example of that right it gets worse in october of 2018 the national tragedy hit the country when 11 people were shot and killed at the tree of life synagogue oh, in pittsburgh oh
1: my god this story i'm sorry so yeah
0: it's oh. it's awful so she she has a connection to pittsburgh she that's where she went to college The next day after the tragedy, she began telling people a friend of hers she met in college had been one of the victims. And once again, she really uh, was mustering up this fury on social media saying, please don't send me photos of people who were murdered. That's my friend, stuff like that. She asked Grey's Anatomy writers to be careful with their language, even getting mad when people would say things like, oh, that pitch was shot down, like stuff like that. She's like, that's triggering uh, me. Uh, A few months after the narrative started to change, she said that she helped clean up the remains of her friend's body from the synagogue floor. This was to be in compliance with Jewish custom that uh, they should be buried 24 hours after um, they die with all of their body parts. Um, And subsequent shootings would always bring the trauma back to Elizabeth. Um, There was the mosque shootings in New Zealand. After that, she also tweeted things um, about her friend who died in the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. Um, so she would just like always jump on these other shooting tragedies with her personal connection to a shooting tragedy. Uh, eventually, um, her cancer plot sort of ended on Grey's Anatomy, and she, you know started latching onto a new character. This was a troubled young surgeon named Joe Wilson, and she proposed a storyline that happened to a friend of hers. After meeting a patient who is a rape victim, Joe starts confronting her own past as an abused wife and learns that she's a product of rape. Now, according to other writers on the show, writing the first episode of this storyline was so stressful for Finch that they all had to obviously help her write it. Uh, she couldn't do it. It was so stressful. Um, But then she obviously wanted to work on Joe's storyline for the rest of the season. Um, Discussions were made in the room about Joe needing to check herself into a mental health facility to deal with the trauma. And Finch was like, I need to check into a mental health facility to deal with my trauma. So she got a six-week paid leave to treat her PTSD that happened to her from the Pittsburgh shooting She checked herself into a mental health clinic in Arizona, and she started going by the name Joe, the name of her character. And it was here that she meets a woman named Jennifer Beyer. And we will take a break here and get back into it.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
0: So Jennifer Byer, who is Jennifer Byer? In January of 2019, Jennifer Beyer, who was a registered nurse in Kansas, arrives at this Arizona mental health treatment center. Um, she's really stressed out. She thinks she, she will never see her five kids alone again. She's suffering from severe PTSD. And a lot of this is due to this traumatic 18-year marriage she's had with a man named Brendan, who she says is an abuser and master gaslighter. Um, so, on the surface, to all of their friends, of course, they seemed like the ideal couple, but obviously there's a lot going on underneath it all. Um, so, Jennifer says that he is controlling. He controlled every movement that she made. He's also physically and sexually violent. Um, you know, it's the classic abusive rela- relationship, like all of her bruises and broken bones were the result of falls, et cetera. Um, his line was that she was mentally ill and suffering from postpartum depression, and that she was making it all up. Uh, and according to her, if she told the truth, um, she wouldn't make it. So she, of course, was fearing for her life. She took out um, a protection order against him and filed for divorce. This forced him out of the house, but he was always nearby watching her, according to Jennifer. Now, the incident that sort of brought her to the Arizona Treatment Center was when she began having disassociative episodes, like a break from reality, not knowing where she was. One incident happened in December of 2018, and she was with her kids. So she basically pulled over thinking she saw something, got out of her car, left her kids alone, cops arrived, and she looked like she had abandoned her kids. So they were sent to CPS- and then this began this whole custody thing with her husband, who now had this to use against her. So she enters the facility, basically unable to function. She is afraid to even speak because she doesn't want to be diagnosed with anything because she thinks that that will, you know, interfere with her custody. She begins um, working with a therapist named Carly. Carly diagnoses her with PTSD, and that's what's causing the dissociative episodes. And she determines that. She's determined to do whatever it takes to bring uh, Jennifer back to health, even if it takes months. So disturbing news um, from home doesn't help. Making matters worth, worse, Brendan is now being arrested. He's taken to an emergency room, and the kids are sent to foster home. Mm. So they're not even with their dad. They do eventually end up being split custody with the foster home and Brendan's mother. So six months into her stay at this Arizona uh, facility, a new resident arrives named Joe, and she becomes part of Byers Process Group. Joe is also suffering from PTSD. She tells the group about her friend in the shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Um, She is also unable to talk. She's, like Jennifer, scared when sudden noises happen. And Jennifer's kind of comforted that a big TV writer is experiencing the same type of PTSD that PTSD that she is, they begin talking and are soon inseparable, even becoming roommates, which is uncommon apparently at this uh, facility. But everyone agrees that it's for the best for these two women. Now, w- when Jennifer sort of confides in uh, confides to Elizabeth all of this stuff about Brendan's abuse, Elizabeth starts revealing to her that her older brother, Eric, had also been cruel and violent to her as a child, something she had never grappled with until this very moment. Elizabeth's parents come to visit her, um, so she has to quickly tell everybody her name isn't really Joe, but (laughs) she just used it because she's such a successful writer, she wanted to kind of be anonymous. (laughs) Um, Her parents come and they hear for the first time about Eric's abuse at these group meetings that they're allowed to sit in on. And they're shocked because they have no idea any of this happened. They've never seen anything that she's describing, but they do their best to listen and to make her feel heard uh, and believe her, all of that kind of stuff. The next meeting, the parents join and the mom starts to speak how much she's been worried about her daughter her whole life, but especially since she was diagnosed with cancer. The group is shocked. They none of them knew that she had cancer. She hadn't that wasn't the narrative. No, and she's not doing anything like she did before wearing she has her hair back. She's not doing like the the bandages. Um she's like, "Yes, I do have cancer, but I don't want to talk about it here." Like that's not what this is for. It's like, "Yeah, but you can't really turn cancer on and off when you're yeah. dealing with other things." Like that's not how it works. So, she also starts really becoming invested in Jennifer's abuse. She finds out that Carly has the possession of uh, Jennifer's phone, Brendan's sending texts text to her, and sometimes Carly will tell Jennifer what these texts are or show her the videos of him saying, I'm coming to get you. They actually get security at the um, facility to protect her. And Jennifer looking back is like, she was always very interested in hearing all of this stuff about Brendan, specifically what type of things he did, et cetera. Now, at some point she her parents leave they leave a photo um, sorry, a family photo album, and Jennifer I'm sorry, um Elizabeth is flipping through it, and inside she finds a handwritten letter from Eric threatening her. She tells Jennifer about this letter while she's holding it. She tells her all these details, but she never lets Jennifer look at the letter. She's just kind of holding it mm. by early July twenty nineteen both women are ready to leave the facility. Jennifer is in need of a service dog to help her with PTSD incidents that might happen. And Elizabeth buys it for her because Jennifer has zero money, obviously, and can't afford it. So everyone's like, wow, what a (laughs) fucking angel. Like, you know, it's just such a nice gesture. They plan on keeping in touch before they leave. Elizabeth returns to Hollywood and she quickly tells her friends about all of her new trauma with her brother, Eric. Um, She elaborates on the photo album letter she says that the letter has written in it keep your mouth shut Um, she also starts adding details about eric's abuse and all of these details are very identical to things jennifer told her brendan did to her while they were married sick back in topeka jennifer is miserable without joe she still calls her joe even after finding out that's not her real name And she begins living in a shelter and going to custody hearings. That's kind of her life. She only sees her kids once a week. Um, And Brendan begins taunting her, posting pictures of her location on Instagram. Luckily, Joe saves the day once again, inviting her to stay with her at a huge mansion in Ojai, the house that belongs to her friend, Anna Paquin. Elizabeth says she's part owner, which is a lie. Joe claims to have, um, sorry, yeah. Joe claims to have security there so that uh, Jennifer will be safe. And this is the weekend where they basically fall in love. Like, yeah. they have a blissful weekend in Ojai. Who doesn't fall in love in Ojai? Uh, <laughs> what I it's made love for. Ojai. <laughs> we should go. It's I, so nice up it's there. It's so magical. So Elizabeth continues to love bomb Jennifer when she returns to Kansas, um, and she even tells Jen the importance of honesty to her. Great. She says, my expectations are and always will be this. Don't lie to me. That's all I ask. It can annoy us or bum us out or even hurt us, but truth will out always. And that's that's a Shakespeare (laughs) line. That's what Elizabeth said to Jennifer? Yes. So she even becomes coming... I'm sorry. She even begins going to Kansas to kind of be emotional support for Jennifer at these custody hearings. And stands up to Brendan like in the courthouse and, and Jennifer is just like impressed how fearless she is. On September 5th, 2019, Jennifer is actually in California on the Grey's Anatomy set when she gets a call from the Kansas Department of Children and Families in Topeka. She's told to return to Kansas immediately because Brendan has killed himself, the, the children's father. Yeah, So the kids are safe. And they both immediately, you know, Elizabeth is like, I need to go to the Gray's. <laughs> Once again, she needs to take some, some leave to go. And they're like, of, of course. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. She goes back to Kansas and they have to obviously tell the children, just awful. Two weeks after the suicide, still in Topeka, Elizabeth writes the following email to the writing staff of Gray's Anatomy. Um, she says, hey, all. I've been absent, coming back tomorrow. I just don't know who's looped into what, and I'd rather put it out there so no one's in the dark or feeling eggshell i I've gone because my mother, my brother died by suicide. Stop it. He was on life support for a short while, but ultimately did not survive. I say this not because I need or want anything from anyone. I'm not a delicate flower or whatever. I just want people to know I'm still here, still part of the team. I intended to just power through my episode shoot, but I recognized I needed to just take a bit of time away to process. Miss y'all, Finchie. She gets back to the Grey's Anatomy friends, I'm sorry, her Grey's Anatomy's friends, and she tells them that because Eric was a doctor, he knew exactly how to shoot himself without killing himself, which forced her to be the one to pull the plug. Uh, and she's like, that was his final act of vindictiveness. And all of her Grey's Anatomy friends cried with her. So now she's kind of really living two separate lives. She has this one with Jennifer and her coworkers, and they each have different lies. They go on a trip to, to Hawaii, and obviously uh, she tells Jennifer this is a work trip. She tells her um, Grey's Anatomy's friends that she's going to Hawaii to reunite her dead brother's illegitimate Filipino baby with the baby's mother in Hawaii. Like, why would she even go to Hawaii? Why? <laughs> why? why? What is the point? I have no idea. Maybe to get the time off and to explain why she was in Hawaii. I, I have no idea. It's just like everything has to be so over the top. <laughs> yeah. So in Jen's version, though, the brother is alive and terrorizing her. Yes.
1: Here, she, <laughs> uh, just saying, like the drama of like, oh, I'm going to Hawaii to reunite his illegitimate kid with the birth mother, or yeah. whatever. She could have just stopped him going there to spread his ashes. That's where he wanted his ashes spread.
0: I know. That's what I keep doing. I'm like, why well, would simplify it? Like yeah, simplify, simplify things. it. Don't make it bigger. <laughs> um, so she's telling Jennifer that he's alive. He's breaking into her home. He's trashing the place. He leaves empty alcohol bottles everywhere. And this actually makes Jen panic because she's like, I'm trying to get my kids back. I yeah. can't be in a dangerous situation. And J- Jen, I'm sorry, um Elizabeth quickly course corrects, and she's like, oh, actually, Eric's gone to the Philippines per legal order, uh, and he can't return to the country without me being noticed, giving notice, being notified. And Jen's like, okay, I guess I can continue this relationship then. (laughs) So soon after um, she's in Kansas, she's helping Jen now clean this house that Brendan trashed before he died. Uh, she meets some of Jen's friends, and she's like, "I'm I'm missing the Emmys to attend." So they're all like, really impressed that she would do this. No one knows that the Emmys were actually months before. It's a complete lie. Yeah. And one of the friends is just post on Facebook. The more I get to know Finchy, the more I realize she is actually a superhero masquerading as a regular person. So she's really built this little image up. On Thanksgiving, she proposes to Jen. They want to get married as soon as possible, hoping that this marriage will help um, them sort of get the custody, like that a a stable home will help her get the kids back. She can legally adopt the kids, et cetera. And she tells Jennifer, Elizabeth tells Jennifer, she's like, look, I don't want these kids ever back in foster care. If anything ever happens to you, I, I will take care of them. And this is obviously very comforting to Jennifer to know her kids will be taken care of. And they start calling her Finch Joe Mama. Now the first crack in this facade appears to Jen while she's in uh, while Elizabeth is in town to see Jen's son perform in the Nutcracker. She starts experiencing what she thinks might be kidney stone pain, but she of course does not want to go to the hospital. And Jen basically insists that she go. She drives her to the hospital. When they're face to face with the doctor at the hospital, um, Finch is telling the sort of symptoms and what's happened happening. And Jennifer is like blown away that she's not saying anything about her medical history, like that she has cancer, right. that she's had kidney transplant or one kidney. Uh, and she, like I said, she's a nurse, so she kind of knows how things are right. and how things go. So she's really blown away by this. She eventually um, convinces the doctor to give her a CT scan and he's like, "Well, this will solve everything." Uh and he says to her the kidneys are fine. So Jennifer's like, "Kidneys? She only has one kidney." <laughs> and she tells Elizabeth this and Elizabeth's like, "Oh, we probably just meant my one working kidney looked fine." And they they didn't pay attention to my pain though. Oh. What about that? So she is using these true and real problems to kind of manipulate situations. Yeah. Jen, of course- Real in- problems of other people. Of other people, yes. Jen, of course, ignores her doubts, and in February of 2020, they are married. Now, as we all remember, COVID hits soon after, so they're kind of stuck in a house together. Everyone's number one goal in life becomes making sure that the- Elizabeth does not get COVID because she's so vulnerable right. uh, with all of her illnesses. So they're bending over backwards to protect her, Um when the summer and fall of 2020 happened, that brings more stress to Elizabeth. It's not only the anniversary of her brother's suicide, but she's really traumatized by like the protest, um, anything that has um, firecrackers or loud sounds. Because remember that period where there was yeah. fireworks always going off yeah, or like yeah. things like that and everyone had had all these conspiracy theories about them? <laughs> yeah. Um, so everything was bringing back um, the tree of life uh, trauma that uh, she experienced, in quotes. Um, she, Jen begins to be get, get suspicious again, and she starts what we all do, going through social media. Yep, yep. <laughs> Why she waited this long, no one knows. She goes to Facebook, begins scrolling. She, look, she goes back to the day of the tree of life shooting, and she sees that Jen has posted that she's out with a friend, it's just her and a friend doing things, just normal things. Out pictures of them doing things that day. Um, she looks through more. The day after, she sees more pics of Jen's with friend. I'm sorry, not Jen, Elizabeth with friends at dinner. She pan- She starts panicking. The more she's scrolling, and the more she's scrolling, she sees pictures of uh, Elizabeth when she had the bald head, but her eyebrows and eyelashes were still full. And obviously she's a nurse, so she's like, that's not how it works. You lose your hair. You don't keep those things and lose your head of hair. So she also is kind of like seeing these pictures of her with this bandage over what she's describing as her um, chemo port scar. And she's like, I've seen your naked body. You don't have a scar where a port was. And that's like a pretty big incision. Yeah. Yeah. She's also noticing that the bandage itself looks really shoddy, like no one would ever put this kind of grubby bandage on something that would be so easily infected, especially with a cancer patient who has no immunity. So she's kind of like, that's not how you would ever do it. And this is not professionally done. This is crazy. So all of these fears are really um, sinking in for her finally. And she begins to plan a confrontation. Knowing Elizabeth's personality, she's like, I need to take this slowly and sort of You know, ease my way into it the first time the first thing she does is ask Elizabeth what medication she's on now this is something in the past that Elizabeth has found very triggering and she's like my brother always questioned me I can't deal with this but she finally rattles off this long list of medications and like I said she's a nurse so she hears one and she's like that's very toxic to one's kidney functions there's no way a doctor would put her on that medication yeah Um, They finally get a loan from the kids one day and she um, finally gets some concessions. Elizabeth admits that she did have cancer at one time, but she got chemo and recovered and she um, had a hard time giving up the attention and she continued to pretend that she had it. So this was still seemingly a lie to to Jennifer though, because she's like, okay, but still, where is your port scar? Like, You still don't have that even if you survived cancer. Uh, And she quickly, like, she had nowhere to go with that one. So she said, I think, you know, Jennifer's like, I think there's more that you're not telling me. So she just kept putting it off and putting it off. She's like, fine, you can put it off. But when we go to California to look for houses, you need to tell me everything. Yeah. So that doesn't happen. Uh, Elizabeth doesn't admit to Jen anything, and Jen didn't, then Jen's just like, forget dipping my toe in the water. I'm just going to unload all of my suspicions on her, including the fact that she's like, I feel like you were targeting me. I feel like you mirrored me. I think that you wrote the threatening letter from Eric, and I don't think the details about the shooting were real. Like, she just is like, here's what I think is true. Yeah. And Finch doesn't really admit to anything, but she doesn't deny it either, Um, Jennifer said there was no emotions and no tears and Finch only maintained that she was the victim of her brother's childhood cruelty. And that was one thing she was not going to give up. So Jennifer obviously is like, I can't live this way. Like, I can't keep this all to myself. I need you to fucking tell people. I need you to tell your family and friends what's going on. Um, so they tell the friends in Kansas, the ones that Jennifer, I'm sorry, Elizabeth just met and they kind of stand by her like they they're like oh we get it we we understand and then she goes behind Jennifer's back and tells them that Jennifer is falling apart because of her past traumas <gasps> and she thinks Jennifer is conflating her with Brendan and they believe it they oh. think Jennifer is the one who has the issue um Jennifer eventually reaches out to Carly to get referrals for another therapist and Elizabeth reveals that she has been behind her back working with Carly and is planning on going on a four-week retreat with her. And this feels like another betrayal to Jennifer, because she's like, You stole all the details of my life, you stole my trauma, uh, you stole my friends, and now you're stealing my therapist. Just like is so <laughs> fucked up. Yeah. And adding to the other, adding to the stress of it all. Is that Carly is providing reports to the Child Protective Services in order for Jen to get the kids back, and now she's concerned that if she pisses Elizabeth off, she'll badmouth Jen to um, Carly, and like that could screw up her custody. And like Jen, I'm sorry, Elizabeth has that over her, like this custody. So, Buyer calls up at, after she finds out this. She pulls up an episode of Grey's Anatomy that was written right after um, Elizabeth left the retreat. And Joe is working with her therapist, a character named Carly, at a mental health facility. And Carly's story, I'm sorry, Joe's story is exactly what happened to Jennifer with Brendan. She has an abusive husband who beat her, who died. Like It's all of of Jennifer's story was used for this um, Joe storyline. So she feels she's really low. Like She feels completely defeated by all of this. She actually checks into a hotel and plans on taking her own life. Oh my God. Luckily, she doesn't go through with it. She gets into a car and starts driving uh, to Arizona, the facility where she met Joe or Elizabeth. And she calls her and tells her that you've won- um, just go back to Kansas. Take the kids. Just get whatever you want. The kids love you. She's like, I only ask that you don't post pictures making yourself to be the hero who recu- rescued your the kids from the sick wife. Um, and and Elizabeth goes there. She goes there and talks to one of Jennifer's daughter, who is obviously <laughs> fucking traumatized. Her dad, you know, killed himself. She's worried about her mom doing the same. Uh, she starts confiding in Elizabeth, will my mom ever get better? And according to the daughter, uh, Elizabeth encouraged these fears. And she leads this child to believe that she is the one that you can always count on, this not your mom. This is disgusting. Yeah. So despite all of this, Jen is still willing to work on the marriage. If they go to counseling, they do go to counseling. And she's still insisting upon this like massive confession to everyone in their lives. And of... Elizabeth eventually, um, after saying she will, she will, she will, she gets so fucking irritated with Jen pressuring her to do the right thing that she files for divorce and leaves the marriage. Now, in February of 2022, Jennifer gets a forwarded email um, from someone in the Grey's Anatomy writer room. Like that was on that email that uh, Elizabeth sent to her coworkers telling them about her brother's suicide. And she realizes that she used... This is the first time she's seeing this email. So she's like, oh my God, she used Brendan's suicide as a story for herself, saying her brother is the one who killed himself. Now, she really hadn't grasped... Even at that point, she's like, I still hadn't grasped how insane it all was. Right. Right. So she finds Shonda Rhimes' email in this like email chain, and she writes her an email saying, Please stop letting Finch tell her stories anymore because there are other survivors' stories. She doesn't hear back from Shonda Rhimes, so she texts showrunner Krista Vernoff the same message. And shortly after that, she gets a call from Disney's HR um, department. Um, and they, at the time, Shonda has produced and is releasing Inventing Anna. Yeah, which is about a con woman named Anna Delvey, and it's like they have their own version of that in the writers' room at this very moment, and right. no one fucking knew. So word quickly begins leaking out about these accusations in the writers' room, and coworkers are like going over everything that she did with a fine tooth comb. I mean, you can imagine. Oh my god, <laughs> you can imagine. Can you even imagine just the energy in that room where you're rethinking? They were vibrating.
1: <laughs> like
0: I the mean, the room was vibrating.
1: Every like, conversation you've had with this woman,
0: and oh my god, I remember when she did that and the barfing and the barfing. Just go. It's like the end of fucking the usual suspects, <laughs> where you're just looking at everything and realizing where all the lies came from. Oh my god. Some of the things they they noticed or pointed out immediately was like the episode of her her first cancer uh, storyline episode was called "Anybody Have a Map?" and that is from a song in Dear Evan Handsome Hansen, which is about a compulsive liar, another kid who does a lie. Yeah. Um, on her 44th birthday, she posted an Instagram album cover of The Greatest Showman about P. T. Barnum. So, like, has she been dropping clues all along? Like, uh, so they're just they're they're at that level now where they're looking at every little detail. So her lies are finally exposed. Um, she hires Andrew Brettler, who is a LA learn. Um, sorry, attorney, who represents Prince Andrew Chris Noth in Army Hammer. Not exactly uh, the best cast of characters there. Uh, and the network begins an investigation. So the network um, ends up not proceeding with this investigation because uh, Elizabeth quits. So they don't really have a reason to continue. I, I would still continue it personally. On March 31st, just to get the details, on March 31st, she says in a statement to like the Hollywood trade outlets... Grey's Anatomy is one big hearted, brilliant family. As hard as it is to take some time away right now, I know it's more important that I focus on my own family and my own health. I'm immensely grateful to Disney, ABC, and Shondaland for allowing me to do so and for supporting me through this very difficult time. So everyone in her life at this point is really like, why? Why? Why did you do this? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so many, you know, obviously like, she hurt people like people are damaged by what she has done like even though she didn't steal money or like whatever like she has ruined people's lives and like hurt them and traumatized them yeah i mean it's crazy a former coworker of hers said searching for the why puts her at the center of our thinking instead of the people who have been hurt and she said that she had a dream about a therapist showing up and telling her some behavior behaviors you'll never make sense of. And she said, I felt like it was my subconscious telling me, if I go down the road of trying to understand her, I will only be in a circle. I will never get a satisfactory answer. She's a fucking narcissist. Yes. Whatever her motivation, whatever her rosebed sled is, if we find it, even if she tells us, how can we even believe it? And she says at this point, she may just be a shell of a person. Like, yeah. Um, so that's where we're going to end. We'll pick up with her explanation in the minisode. Wow, Desi, that was
1: incredible. I obviously read the story when it came out and I was obsessed with it, but hearing it all over again. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear this interview. Yeah. To hear what she has to say for herself.
0: Yeah. She has some explanations. So oh, well <laughs> it'll all be cleared up. Soon. Okay. <laughs> Bye.